Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Well, let's begin today with our scripture verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And it is um, not lost on me how powerful this verse is and how related this verse is to the book of Leviticus as we've been learning about what we've been learning over the last month. And you can say it with me if you want to repeat it with me. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I love it. Oh, I love it so much. I I feel like it speaks so much to what we've been learning. And I just love that. We're together learning how to become disciplined, heartstrong disciples of Jesus. And so this month, we want to abide in Jesus's identity that I am saved by grace and made new. Again, Leviticus speaks to this so beautifully. We want to follow Jesus as we build up the church and his community, and we want to practice in the ways of Jesus by sharing the good news and making disciples, and it is such an honor to do so. As I've been studying and preparing for Leviticus chapter 14 and 15, you can open up your Bibles and uh, turn to that. I was saying to some of the uh, the friends that were coming onto the, the call early that I've been probably studying this for a month. I've been doing so much research and so much reading and just discovering um, that there is so much to learn about it. I feel like a month in researching and studying these chapters and the book of Leviticus that there's still so much I do not know. So even in that space, I feel almost like intimidated to begin to teach on a part of it because there is just so much to know and to learn. And the more you dig, the more you realize there is to know. Reading the book of Leviticus is a little bit like going on an adventure expedition in search of a valuable discovery in your backyard. (laughs) Jesus told this parable about a man who bought a field, something very normal, very ordinary, but buried within it, there was a treasure, which truly is an extraordinary thing. The landscape of Leviticus is not really that great. Just reading it line by line is a bit dull and it seems a little irrelevant, but if you begin to dig, there's so much treasure under the surface to discover about God's heart for us. I literally have here today 32 pages of treasure (laughs) of notes of discovery from these two very grotesque and detailed chapters. (laughs) But my prayer is may the Lord give us eyes to see every day the treasure buried within the mundane and the ordinary. I promise you I will not keep you here for three hours and read all 32 pages of my notes. But as I prepared for this, I said, okay, Lord, well, I am just going to present what you tell me to present. So (laughs) my notes will be available if you want to read more. So today we're going to be studying Leviticus chapter 14 and 15. And here's a little bit of an overview. Leviticus chapter 14 and 15 are a continuation of a series of chapters on cleanness and uncleanness, specifically addressing skin diseases, 
moldy houses and bodily discharges. Chapter 13 uh, that Anita did yesterday is connected to chapter 14, talking about skin diseases and leprosy. Leprosy in the Old Testament was a general term covering all skin diseases. However, we're going to start reading today in chapter 14 with how to restore someone who's been healed from a skin disease. First, we need to notice and celebrate that healing has taken place. As we begin in chapter 14, it's talking about when healing has happened. And when we are sick and we are healed, whether that is through time, whether that's through medicine, whether that's through a miracle, we need to stand in awe of that healing. That healing is even possible because God created our bodies to heal themselves. That healing is possible because God created doctors who can treat sickness and that there's medicine for sickness, that God himself heals miraculously. Any way we heal from sickness is a miracle from God. And we see this even in the chapters today, the priests being involved in this process of healing and restoration to cleanness after sickness. And I just want to take a moment. And if you need healing today for anything, if you're navigating anything physical in your body and you need a healing today, why not us together believe as a heartstrong family for healing? God is our healer. And he heals in many different ways, but he is our healer. And so if you need a healing today, I encourage you write it in the chat, what it is you need a healing in your body. And as we go through the chapter today, Heartstrong Family, I just encourage you to begin interceding for all of those things that you need healing for. So put that in the chat right now. And we'll also send that to our prayer team to keep praying for you for healing. Chapter 15 is going to go into the laws about sexual bodily discharges. Again, we're in this world of clean and unclean not sin. It's important not to mix up the distinction between these two. Remember in the garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, their sin brought a curse on all the things that were created to be beautiful, such as work and relationships and sex and intimacy and childbirth. It's not that these things are bad or wrong, but they're tainted by sin. And so therefore they require cleansing. Also, it's important to remember that this unclean state was only relevant if one wanted to go to the temple to make a sacrifice. These laws were in place to ensure that the altar of God was not soiled by sin or by the brokenness of this world. As I've been doing all of this research over the last month or so, it has all pointed to an incredible discovery about the heart of God toward us, his people. And so let's dive in. I mentioned this a few days ago in Leviticus chapter one, verse one, it opens up with the Lord God called Moses from the tent of meeting. And then if we fast forward to numbers one, verse one, it says the Lord God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So the book of Leviticus is God's way to get his people into his presence. This is God's desire for all of us. And one of the hardest things for us to wrap our head around, especially while we're reading a book like Leviticus, is the focus on all the things that make us not good enough for God's presence. We've got to keep in the forefront of our minds that the law is God's provision to his presence, not the exclusion of. God pursued Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin, and God pursues you after you sin out of his great desire for relationship with you. And Leviticus is God's great pursuit of his people. He wants to be with them and he wants you to be with him. And so my first question for reflection today is, do you struggle just to be with God? 
And do you know how much he just wants to be with you? I want you to imagine for a minute, God, like the sun, God is not the sun. Let's just make that distinction. This is just an analogy, but I want you to imagine the sun for a minute and imagine God, like the sun, the sun is brilliant. It's powerful. It's life giving. It makes everything grow, but it is also dangerous. If I stay out in the sun too long, it will burn me. So in order to enjoy the sun, I need protection so that I can enjoy it safely. Those provisions would include things like sunscreen or clothing. Clothing protects us from the harmful nature of the effects of this life-giving, very powerful sun. When I get a sunburn, I don't blame the sun for how hot it is and how dangerous it is. I blame myself for not taking the proper precautions under its power to harm me. I'm not afraid of the sun, but I have a deep respect for its power and I must yield to it. We accept the limitations of our exposure to the sun for our own good. The sun never needs to change to suit me. So is the same with our relationship with God, his power, and his holiness. God created the entire world and everything in it so that he could have relationship with us. He wanted us to live in the full benefits of his glory and his presence. And in exchange, he desires to have personal and intimate communion with us. Before sin, there was no sunscreen needed because we who were made in his image were able to be in God's presence and not be harmed. Our righteousness enabled us to live in God's presence. When sin entered this perfect world, a separation came between us and God. We could no longer stand in the presence of such holiness without dying. God's presence cannot be in the presence of sin without the consequence of death. Sin made us vulnerable to the power of God's holiness. So God shed the blood of an animal to cover the sin of Adam and Eve and sent Adam and Eve out of the garden of God's presence. You see, it was either Adam and Eve who needed to die or someone or something alive with life blood that needed to make atonement on their behalf. What did God say? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. God spared Adam and Eve because of his love for them, and instead he shed the blood of another on their behalf. God made a provision for them, thus setting the stage for God's order to reestablish his presence in their midst. The shedding of blood was like the sunscreen that was needed for them to enter back into God's presence. God wants to dwell with his people, and that's been his heart's desire from the very beginning. So as we read the law, let's not get caught up in all the specifics of what they were required to do, but instead, let's try to see God's heart to restore relationship by dwelling with his created people. And let's be careful not to feel bad for those who are required by law to certain rituals and practices, and instead see that God's people are continually wanting to go out in the sun and complaining that they're getting burned. They want all the benefits of God, but they don't want to submit to the limitations of the relationship. At this time in history, Leviticus was the way to life. It was the way to have God dwell with his people. Anything is worth that. My favorite scripture, my life scripture is better as one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And wouldn't that be all of our hearts? So let's dive in to Leviticus 14. So as I said, there's a difference between sinning against God and others and being unclean. Being unclean is just a part of the fall. Have you ever been walking maybe after a rainstorm and a car drove by through a puddle and sprayed you with all the dirty, muddy water? Being unclean is sort of like that. 
There's nothing that you've done wrong. You're not to blame, but you're affected by the brokenness of a fallen world. At this time, all people would be unclean over and over again because uncleanness was a part of living. But God is establishing that no matter what the reason for the brokenness, there must be a sacrifice or a cleansing ritual to atone for brokenness and to make it holy. And remember, these cleansing rituals were only needed if or when one wanted to go and make a sacrifice. So let's dive into the first couple of verses of Leviticus chapter 14. I love how each of these chapters starts with, the Lord spoke to Moses. God is speaking to Moses. That is amazing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out to the camp and the priest shall look. And if the case of the leprous disease is healed again, I love this in the leprous person, then the priest shall command them to take him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. So again, we see once the person has been healed, the priest is involved to restoring them back to cleanness again. Cleansing prefigures Christ's work of cleansing from sin. The leprous man is healed and needs to be cleansed. Now this in and of itself points to a picture of justification and sanctification. So justification is the work of Christ healing the sin, the leprous sin in our nature, inside of us and the brokenness in our lives. God, the judge, declares us righteous, even though we're sinners, because of what Christ has done for us. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal standing before God. And then sanctification is the process of God cleaning us up to make us look more like him. It's a relational act where he purifies us, and this is a lifelong process. Isn't that so fascinating to think about our faith walk right now, exactly in light of what is happening in this Old Testament law-driven way? Justification and sanctification is happening. Those who are healed then need to be cleansed. And for us, those who are justified then need to be sanctified. Now, notice in verse four, it says, the priest shall command them to get two live clean birds, cedar wood and scarlet yarn. Who is the them that they're referring to? It's likely that it is other priests. So listen to this. The unclean leper cannot go and get the things for himself because anything he touches will become unclean. So he's reliant on someone else to go and get what is needed for the ritual cleansing. So is the same with us. We cannot clean ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves. We have nothing to offer God, yet he draws near to us and provides for us everything we need for healing and cleansing. What a profound reality for you and for me. Let's continue reading in verse five. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent for seven days. And then on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows, 
and he shall shave it off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. So cedar wood is used because it's extremely resistant to disease and rot, and these qualities are probably the reason for including it here. The hyssop branches were used for the sprinkling of blood and water. Hyssop has cleansing properties. It's a plant and a flower. The actual ceremony that they were doing was very symbolic, but very meaningful. So one bird was killed over fresh water. The sprig of hyssop, a branch of cedar, were tied to the bird with the scarlet wool yarn. So picture that all tied together. The priest dipped all of that. It was like a brush. The priest dipped the hyssop, the cedar, and the tail of the bird in the blood and the water, and then used this unorthodox brush to sprinkle the blood on the person or the house seven times to declare them to be clean. And then the bird was released into an open field. Now, how does this ritual point to Jesus? Now watch this. This is so fascinating. <laughs> I just love this. this. The discovery is unreal. All right, so this ritual happened outside of the camp, away from the normal conduct of the system of sacrifice. Jesus was sacrificed outside of the gate, outside of the camp. There was a living thing of the heavens that was sacrificed in an earthen vessel. Jesus was a man from heaven sacrificed here on earth. Even as the bird was killed, it was cleansed by the running water. Jesus remained cleansed and holy, even in his death, becoming sin without becoming a sinner. This death associated with blood and water was applied to the leper and applied perfectly seven times in connection with the living bird. Jesus came by water and by blood and died in association with blood and water. The sacrificial blood was also applied to scarlet yarn and a piece of wood together with hyssop. Jesus died in association with scarlet cloth, wood, and hyssop, all involved. Bearing the mark of the sacrifice, the living bird flew away, ascending to the heavens out of sight. Jesus lived bearing the marks of his death, and he ascended to heaven out of human sight. There is this sense in which the living bird is set free, points to the resurrected Jesus but it also points to the one healed and freed from their leprosy, including the leprosy of sin. They are resurrected and free in the resurrected Christ Jesus. In a remarkable way, the unusual ritual points to the future work of the Messiah that would cleanse those stained with the sin of leprosy. Isn't that just amazing? Just amazing. All right, the rest of the chapter I'm just going to do in a quick overview because it gets into a lot of very specific details. Chapter 14, verses 10 to 20, focuses on the cleansing at the sanctuary, restoring the patient to full fellowship as a member of covenant community. When the three standard offerings are presented, the sin offering for purification, the burnt offering for praise and prayer, and the grain offering for worship through a pleasing aroma to the Lord, the person has full restoration. In verses 21 to 32, God is making provisions for those who cannot afford the requirements of verse 10 to 20. So birds are substituted for the expense of large animals, and the amount of grain is two-thirds less than the normal amount. And Anita covered this really beautifully yesterday. Again, this very allowance was the one used by Jesus's own mother and father in Luke 2.22, which I think is just so beautiful. Jesus came from very humble beginnings. 
Leviticus 14 verses 33 to 57 is all around the laws for cleaning houses. So these laws regarding leprous disease in houses anticipate the time when Israel will settle in the land of promise and the people will be living in houses. Houses could become infected with disease. This latter term is a general word that may refer to things like mold and mildew and fungus. How practical. God is getting very practical here. These are real things that we see even today. These are unclean and dangerous, so they must be eradicated. The priest determines what course of action must be taken when such a problem occurs. So in this final section, God is reminding the people that even when they enter the promised land, that there's still going to be problems that, that are going to have to be atoned for. And he gives them very specific and practical instructions of what to do when these things are happening. All right. Are you ready for Leviticus 15? Let's dive in. It's a good thing I was given this chapter because I'm kind of like, I don't really embarrass easily at all. And I'm really sorry for those of you who do or who find this topic embarrassing. I don't really embarrass easily, but I promise I'll be as careful and diplomatic as I possibly can. <laughs> so Leviticus 15 verses 1 to 33 is about discharges from male and female reproductive organs. Yay, okay, we're going here together. And so the rules of this chapter are symmetrically structured. Just before I unpack that, I do wanna make one comment that is so, so, so fascinating about Leviticus. Um, God has structured the Torah in five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis and Deuteronomy, they have very similar, very similar patterns in them. At the end of Genesis, we see Jacob prophesying over his sons. At the end of Deuteronomy, we see Moses prophesying over the sons of Jacob again, and the prophecies match. So interesting. So then we see uh, Genesis, Exodus coming next, and Numbers, they mirror each other as well. In fact, some of the exact same things that happened to them in Exodus happened in numbers as well, which is in the same places. I mean, exactly. So now, right now, we're actually in Leviticus, in the dead center of the Torah. And Leviticus is broken up into three sections. And we're in the middle of the middle of the middle of the Torah, which I just find how God has structured it is so beautiful and powerful. So Leviticus 15 is structured like this. Verses 2 to 15 talks about a serious case of male discharge. So this includes male sexually transmitted diseases or any disease affecting sexual organs. Verse 16 and 17 talk about man's emission of semen. Anytime this occurs, cleansing was needed. And so this includes both practical hygiene, but also spiritual cleansing. The loss of semen represents the loss of life or wasting life. Sexual intercourse is talked about in verse 18, and sexual intercourse makes both the man and the woman unclean because of the exchange of the bodily life-giving fluids. Again, the wasting of life. Life and death were so important, and that's why a lot of the ritual cleansing was about life and death. Things that represented death needed to be cleansed. Female menstruation is verse 19 to 24. And so the same cleansing laws apply, but there is additional complication because again, the loss of blood represents both life, life that did not happen, but also it represents death. So it adds in a layer of complication. But what we do see in this chapter is that there's equal purification needed for either or for both male and for female emissions. 
I can't believe we're talking about this in the heartstrong. It's so awesome. Um, verse 25 to 30, we see a serious case of female discharge. So this would be um, like the woman with the issue of blood that we see in the New Testament. And what's so beautiful about this is there's going to be all of the laws and things that are needed to do in order for purification. But we see in the New Testament when Jesus showed up that, you know, she touched Jesus, which would have made him unclean, yet he didn't become unclean and instead made her clean. So again, Jesus really did fulfill all of the heart of the law. It is clear that unclean is not the same as sinful, but rather has to do with what is permitted. The Bible does not view the process of reproduction with its associated bodily functions as evil. This is a part of the good original creation, even though human nature is severely damaged by the fall of Adam. Certainly the creator of these functions has the right to tell his obedient creatures how to use them. And so that's what's happening in this chapter. I want to point out verse 31. It says, verse 31 says, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And so these final verses conclude with a warning and a summary. And the you is referring to Moses and Aaron. Defiling my tabernacle refers to the presence of uncleanness in the camp that constantly defiles the sanctuary. And this idea is preparing for the need for its cleansing in the day of atonement ritual, which is coming tomorrow. Now, instead of reading this chapter verse by verse, I wanted to read an overview from John Golden Gay from the Bible for Everyone, because I think he did a brilliant, brilliant explanation in layman's terms of what the heart of these chapters are. So I'm going to read this. And if I go over time one or two minutes, this is, we're coming down the end here. Leviticus 15 verses one to 33, it's on sex and taboos. Now ta he's using the word taboos instead of unclean. So when you hear the word taboo, it just means unclean. The Torah is bothered about sex because it knows that sex and procreation are linked, but that the link is inefficient. The reason this matters is because both male and female emissions represent the possibility for life. Most times a man has sex with his wife, it does not result in procreation. The semen is wasted. Leviticus also may refer to nocturnal emissions. Even more obviously, this life-giving semen is then simply wasted. The same would be true of masturbation and coitus interruptus, which would mean when the man pulls out. So a man is taboo, unclean, after any of these happenings, not because there's something wrong about the sexual act itself, but because there's something unnatural about the wasting of life-giving semen. It's not that this is a big deal. You just have to wash the bedclothes, bathe, and stay out of the sanctuary that day. Parallel but more complicated questions are raised by menstruation because menstruation involves blood, which adds to its worrying and mysterious nature. This, this is a paradoxical event because it's simultaneously a sign of life. Menstruation signals that a woman could be the bearer of new life and a sign of death. Losing blood is a sign of death. Like the emission of semen, then menstruation makes someone taboo, unclean. But the greater level of mystery and taboo about menstruation means the process of cleansing is more complex than that of the emission of semen. The Torah does not imply a link between menstruation and sin or a need to avoid being in the presence of menstruating women and isolate them or any link between menstruation and demons. 
All of these kinds of attitudes have been taken from different cultures, reflecting a male fear of menstruation. And there are hints in the Old Testament that Israelite men could share these instincts, but the Torah sets boundaries to them. Menstruating women are not isolated from their families, homes, or work. You just have to avoid direct physical contact if you want to go into the sanctuary that day. The emission of semen and menstruation are what one might consider all regular natural events, even though they convey taboo. Yet in another sense, all of this is a very big deal because you have to go through frequent times when you have to hold back from going to the sanctuary and or avoid physical contact with people and or go to make an offering. Although they were designed for literal implementation, they were also teaching tools. In Western Christian culture, the key question about sex may seem the moral one about whether you're having sex with the right person and menstruation is just something a woman has to manage. But in actuality, sex and menstruation deserve some awe on the part of both men and women. For some women who are trying to get pregnant, their monthly period is a reminder that once again, they have failed to conceive. And they're very aware of the link between menstruation and procreation. And menstruation is a sign of life and a sign of death. The life is wasted. So is with the husband's emission of semen. And so in conclusion, the purpose of these laws was to maintain the people's separation. Nezar is the Hebrew word from the uncleanness that is inevitably occurred as a regular part of the human experience. The word separate can also mean dedicate or consecrate when used of the persons that are separated unto God. So listen to this, okay? Although sin and uncleanness separate us from God's presence, God's law is designed to separate us from our sin and uncleanness next to a holy God, making us fit for worship. God makes us fit and separates us from our sin. And so my other question for reflection today is, have you ever taken time to reflect on how God sent Jesus, our atoning sacrifice to separate us from our sin, rather than focusing on how our sin separates us from God? Oh, what an incredible savior. I'm going to take a pause there and just pray. <laughs> That's as far as we're going to get today. <laughs> Let's see how many, how far did I get? I got 19 of 35 pages, so. Not too bad. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your incredible, incredible word. We thank you for what you have done for us and what you're showing us through these laws that seem not relevant for our particular day and age that we're living. But God, there's so much truth, so much of your heart in the pages of them. God, would you bring revelation through your Holy Spirit for us, for how this applies to our life? May we receive every single day the gift of grace that you've given us to separate us from our sin in order to be able to come into your presence freely. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Thank you for literally giving us your spirit and for allowing our bodies now to be the temple of your spirit that is within us. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done. Continue to speak to our lives. I pray a blessing on those who need to go off to work. And I pray that you would make them a blessing today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. 
A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in his ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice, all of your Bible study, events and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. Heartstrong.